Hi, I'm Connor Nyland, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 58 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This week, I'm excited to speak to Ireland's Connor Nyland. Connor is the most successful Irish male tennis player over the past 40 years. He was ranked number three NCAA, achieved a career-high ATP ranking of 129, qualified for Wimbledon and the US Open main draw, played over 25 Davis Cup matches, and is now the current captain of the Irish Davis Cup team. He tells us some great anecdotes from his tour life, as well as great advice for junior tennis players and parents. Hope you enjoy the episode. Here we go. Connor, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Thanks, Fabio. Thanks for having me. Really exciting to have you on. I was uh, doing some research last night. Not that I had to do research, but I was going through some of the old Fitzwilliam Junior Championship results. There's a website out there with them all on it. And I did play you once. Do you think the only time I ever played you, you probably don't remember, but it was doubles. I think it was even under 16. You were playing with a guy called Fergus Adams. Okay, yeah, yeah. Was that that was in Fitz, was it? That was in Fitz, yeah. Gee, I God. don't remember that. I don't. I don't remember even playing doubles of Fergus Adams. So Fergus was an English tennis player, but his mum was from County Meath, I think, and his dad was from the north of Ireland. But he was born and raised in England, and I used to play a lot of tournaments over there growing up, and we became good buddies. And he would have come over and played that, but I have absolutely no memory of not only not playing you, but not even playing with my doubles partner for that whole week in the nationals, which is kind of weird. But anyway, that's really interesting. It, it doesn't surprise. Me to you. First round, you know, used to just walk through these, like, why do you have to show up for the first round? But we did, myself, and I don't know if you remember, Derek Hosback, we did squeeze a set yeah. off you. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take yeah, that yeah. with the career you had, I'll, I'll take that set. So Derek was carrying it. He was a good athlete. I remember him. He was. He was, <laughs> he was really good. Derek was really good. So I've gone through your resume in the intro and I was saying, well, what are we going to talk about in this show? And there's so much from obviously your junior career your training at, at various places and then on to your stab at the pro career, then going to college, coming a, a top three NCAA player, back on the pro tour, being Ireland's best Grand Slam player for over 30 or 40 years and your Davis Cup matches, your Davis Cup captain and so many more things. I was like, we're not, never going to cover all this. And I thought, why don't we ask Connor about his, his experiences, how, how he can help other players out there be better, make better decisions on and off the court. So I'd like to talk a lot about that. But uh, before we get started, maybe let's talk about probably the thing you talk about most is probably the best match you ever had at Wimbledon. Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was it was a great summer, uh, Fabio. We uh, had um, I played Queen's warm up event um, a couple of weeks before and had lost six in the third last round of qualifying to Matt Ebden, and there was sort of some talk of me potentially getting a wild card, but uh, I, I didn't really think it would happen. Obviously, I'm I'm, mm. uh, I'm Irish, and it was always a long shot, but that was sort of happening in the background. But anyway, I went to went to qualifying and. Saved a couple of match points in the first round of qualifying against Justin Oana uh, from France. And then second round, qualies beat Greg Jones from Australia. And then uh, Nicola Mectic in the last round of qualies, which is its best of five sets for last round of qualies um, at Wimbledon. But we started the last round of qualies on the Thursday um, and didn't get it finished till the Saturday because of rain. So it was really um, obviously the biggest match of my life, a huge amount riding yeah. on it. And even though I was 
you know, won the first set and then sort of midway through the second set, we were off and had to go home for the night and back. It was such a kind of a, it was a kind of a stressful three days, just, you know, kind of almost there, uh, but not there. Um, and then had a few Irish mates who were living in London at the time. And, and my brother just lived in London for a long time. So we had a nice crew there um, supporting me. And then when I got over the line, it was it was a brilliant moment. Um, and yeah, then obviously got to play main draw um, against Manorino from France, Adrian Manorino, um, and uh, had a had a really tough four hour five set battle that I probably should have won. I was up I was up four one on the fifth uh, double break, um, and uh, it just got away from me. And I would have I would have played Federer at centre court um, in the second round. So bittersweet, um, but definitely something that I look back on with a lot of fondness. I'm really glad and feel really lucky that I was able to get to play at that tournament that you know we all dream about as tennis players um, and then qualified for US Open that summer and, and played Djokovic on Arthur Ashe. So I was able to sort of tick that box of playing on a big court at the Slam just after Wimbledon. So uh, yeah, it was a great summer, a lot of, a lot of good memories. And briefly tell us about, we know the Djok- Djokovic match, sorry, our listeners probably don't, but Tell us what happened the night before the Djokovic match. Well, I um, I got food poisoning, I think. Um, I, I certainly got a bad stomach bug. Um, so I was all, I guess, qualified again on the Friday or Saturday. And I played him on the Tuesday um, and woke up. Uh, it was actually two nights before. Um, and I was uh, I was very, very sick, uh, getting sick all night and all the next day um, and was trying to rehydrate. And if it was any if it was sort of a futures or something, I would have pulled out. Yeah. You know, I, I had just nothing in me. But obviously with uh, with Djokovic there and getting on that court, there was no way I wasn't going to. Um, and I I went out and I, I, I hit the ball OK, but I just had nothing in me. And he was, you know, number one in the world at the time. I'm just, you know, even me at my best. You know, I probably would have uh, only gotten a couple of games of set uh, doing well. So I lost uh, first at 6-1 and then at 5-love in the second um, after having the doctor on court, um, kind of with the advice of the doctor as well. Um, I just stopped. So I had to retire in that match. So I got the experience of going out there, but I couldn't enjoy the couple of days before because I was just uh, trying to deal with this sickness. So kind of a strange one. Um, but uh, I guess that's tennis. You know, we had to take the good with the bad. It wasn't Coach Gary Cattle trying to poison you, was it? <laughs> Definitely not. No, no, Gary, he would have been trying to get to Djokovic, not me. So um, no, it was um, just one of those things. Um, there was a hurricane in, in New York that weekend and they had shut down Manhattan um, and lots of restaurants were shut. And they had uh, at our hotel a list of restaurants in the area that were had kept open. Um, so we went to, went to one of those. And I guess it was that meal. Maybe there was some sort of, uh, you know, fridges were turned off or, or food, fresh food wasn't getting in like it usually was because of the, the hurricane. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's a good, it's a, you know, it's a, uh, kind of a funny, interesting story. Rather than me kind of saying, oh, yeah, I lost to Djokovic 1-1-1, one, one, and one, at least I've got a bit of a story around it as well, you know. Yeah, you've a bit of, it's, a, it's a good, you know, you can sell it a bit better. And you didn't get to play Federer at Wimbledon, but you did play him as a, is it young, 11, 12-year-old? Yeah, we played, uh, we were at an event over in France. Um, myself, James Colquhoun, Ross Shanley, David O'Connell were the team and uh, Jim Watt was the coach. Um, and we played uh, Switzerland um, in a match. And uh, yeah, the Jim Watt charted the match. And I found the piece of paper in my bedroom uh, a few years later and he just won he just won Junior Wimbledon or, you know, something like that. He was sort of 16 at the time. And I thought, oh, gee, that guy, he's doing well. <laughs> and obviously been tracking it ever since. Um, so, yeah, really, uh, 
uh, really incredible that uh, he's got on to such incredible things. But uh, yeah, he was a little bit very loose and um, a, a different sort of uh, a different sort of a vibe. Obviously, as a thir- 12, 13 year old, he was 12, I think I was 12 as well. We're the same age. So a little bit of a different um, body language and that he was a lot looser than he is, uh, you know, in terms of his kind of concentration and application. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy story and a crazy career he's had. And for the record, you did beat him. Yeah, I did. Yeah, five and two, I think it was. So uh, straight sets, no problems. They all count. They all count. <laughs> they all count. Uh, they all count. And tell me, I'm throwing out all these famous names, but it's great to be able to, to throw them out. Your training session with Pete Sampras. Yeah, kind of another funny story around that. Um, I was playing a challenger in Carson in, in Los Angeles. Um, and I think it was first round. I was playing Ryan Sweeting from the US. Um, and I... And just served for the match in the second set. It was a really, really windy day. So I, I guess I was, I don't know, six four, five four up or something and, and lost my serve. And I took the ball out of my pocket um, and I hit it down the other end of the court um, in sort of anger and the wind took it and it ended up hitting a lines, a lines judge. Um, I shouldn't laugh lightly um, on, on the, on the shoulder. And, um, the, uh, the the Lions judge obviously was uh, was we wasn't in a lot of pain but was a little bit uh, a little bit shook as was I and I got defaulted so um, I was head of the tournament and uh, a friend of mine who was the manager at UCLA uh, who does a little bit did a little bit of work with Pete um, he texted me and said oh, I saw you're out and you lost in Carson or whatever can you hit with Pete tomorrow in UCLA so I said yeah no problem and obviously he was my big idol growing up so like first thing. You know, obviously, hi, Pete, how are you? Yeah, nice to meet you. And Pete sort of says, yeah, how'd you get on at the tour? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I, I got defaulted. So like, the first thing I'm saying to him, one of my childhood idols is, you know, I, I got defaulted on the tour, which only happened once in my in my life. So um, <laughs> kind of funny story. So uh, we ended up getting on pretty well and having having a good hit. And uh, he'd hurt his back, actually, I think. Um, so he, 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 only, he only, only hit kind of ground strokes for an hour and then he didn't hit any serves. So I didn't actually get to face uh, the Samper serve, but uh, he hit a really good penetrating ball. It was surprisingly kind of flat um, and and heavy. It really came through the wow. court a lot. Um, sometimes I found when I was playing guys, um, so at the top 100, you know, the, the, the ball can actually slow down a bit when you're playing with them. Um, they make a lot more balls. Like sometimes at futures, things can be almost really fast and everyone's sort of slapping the ball all over the place and then at the, top, the higher levels things slow down a bit um and you feel like you actually have quite a lot of time uh, but whereas when i was playing with pete it was really it was really coming on to me but uh, yeah cool experience to meet him do you still have him on the whatsapp <laughs> <laughs> no it was all it was all through his manager i <laughs> never got that never got the number Damn. I, uh, yeah. And how does his ball, I know you trained with Murray as well. How did their balls compare? Yeah, a bit, uh, a bit different. Obviously, Andy, when I was training with him was, uh, you know, was two in the world or whatever uh, uh, at the time, whereas Pete had been, I don't know, I'm only off the top of my head, maybe five, five years retired. Okay. Um, so like when I played practice points on that with Murray, I just found it really like, I was just thinking, so how do I actually how am I going to accumulate points against this guy? Because you can't kind of, he's so hard to put the ball past because he's so quick. Um, and then obviously he's ridiculously 
solid. He's not going to miss. And then he's got, you know, he's popping the serve down 130 and he's got, you know, the forehand's huge <laughs> and then he's got variety as well. So um, I just got the full picture with Murray, I suppose, in terms of how much he brings to the table. Um, you know, he's got probably four or five different ways he can beat you. Um, again, with the, with the Sampras practice, it was a little bit more up and down the middle and I didn't get to face the serve. I think the Sampras game was probably a little bit more simple in that, you know, the serve was, was the foundation. Um, and then, you know, he obviously had the running forehand, the athleticism and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, the Murray was, yeah, he just had so much, so much to his game, I guess. That was what was so interesting. And what did you come away after practicing with Murray? What's the few takeaways that you got like that made you up your game after that? Yeah, I, I did find myself, I think I found myself playing some really good tennis for the couple of months after. Um, and he, we did sort of two little two day blocks with him. And um, well, I think you find, I think playing with top players is really motivating. In the first instance, for for guys who are you know outside, I was I guess I was 150 in the world or something at the time. So it's really motivating. You do obviously get to win, you know, some points against them. So it's great for your confidence. But then the the level of the then obviously you're bringing your level up because you want to give them a good practice. So the quality of your sessions probably goes up a little bit more than usual. So you're just getting a lot of um, you're getting a lot of benefits. Um, it was really interesting the, the sort of attention to detail around you know obviously. How had his physical trainers. He had a couple of uh, coaches with him. Danny Velverdu was there and Alex Karecha at the time. Um, and then he, I think there was even, I think he was might have been trying out a couple of pairs of shoes at the time. Um, and he was sort of checking the, the tongue on his uh, shoe just to make sure it was a little bit thicker and fatter, but more comfortable. He didn't have any bevels, I think, on his grip. Uh, on his racket, it was just a smooth round grip. I think I, I might be misremembering that, but just lo lots of those little details. He was quite, um, uh, as I say, kind of looking for that edge, I guess, all the time and, and making it, making sure everything was was absolutely perfect. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting. Whereas, you know, I suppose I was a little bit more a bit more rough and ready and, <laughs> to show up. Uh, I guess I don't have the budgets, um, you know, to employ. I was there with Gary Cahill, was there for the trip. And uh, so I had one coach, um, whereas he had, you know, four or five people on his side of the court. Uh, but that comes with the success, you know, that he's that he's worked for his whole life. So um, it was a really cool, really cool experience. And while you, while you mentioned Gary there, but just a quick one on Joe Dwyer, where we had him on the show at about 20 episodes ago, and he was saying that he was traveling with you, Clay Court Tournament, and you were playing matches with the wrong sole shoe. Is that a true story or not true? Well, yeah, when I actually heard that and I was like, well, hang on, I won like four or five features <laughs> on Clay before I met Joe. So I'm not sure, maybe that week or something I had uh, I had different shoes on. I don't I don't remember yeah. that, but, uh, but Joe was... Uh, brilliant character and, and really knows his stuff as well. He uh, He's traveled with myself and Jeff Salzenstein, who was top 100, obviously James McKee was top 150. Um, and uh, yeah, gave me some really good information on running forehand. Uh, he really helped me with my slice backhand. I didn't have much of a slice backhand up until my mid-20s. And then he just helped me um, kind of lock that in, which gave me a bit more of an out and a change up um, in, my, in my rally play, which was really helpful. Um, and uh, he had some really good drills as well for working on um, sort of specific shots in specific parts of the court. Like if you're brought particularly deep on a ball, the shot to hit down at the body, the body shape. Uh, you know, it was it, it was really good couple of years with him. But I, I suppose I had a lot of different influences and coaches in my in my career and you, you take little bits from everybody, but I've always found like the real the book obviously stops with you. And if you're not 
uh, driving the whole, if you're not driving the bus, it's not going to happen. Um, so I f- kind of feel like I've noticed a shift in the last 10 years or 15 years where it's almost as if the, the, the player is a total blank canvas and it's really about the coach and the coach's input and that's what makes the player. But I kind of always thought it was the total opposite that it's 90% the player and it's on them and, and sort of 10% what the coach can bring. I, I think I agree. It always, as you say, the penny drops, the coin drops at the at the player. It's up to them to perform, to take all their learnings and execute on court. The coach isn't the guy hitting the shots out on the, on the match court. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. You've retired now about, it's eight years, is it? Yeah, it was April uh, 2012. I didn't think it was that long ago. It's absolutely flown along. And I know eight years is, is a long time, but it goes by quick. Do you still wish you were out there competing or are you happy with the day job? Um, like I suppose when the big tournaments are on, um, you'd like to still be involved, but I, I know what goes with getting to those tournaments. Um, and it's and it's 30 weeks on the road and, and, and 24, 25 of those weeks, certainly at the challenger level are, are played in front of kind of you know one or two people and there's not a lot of atmosphere so you're really driving yourself on all the time at that level um i would love another shot at it <laughs> i'd yeah, love to be 16 i'd love to, i'd love to be 16 again <laughs> um and I, I, knowing what i know now um and i would have done things um a little bit differently but uh you know i think i made i made a, a pretty good fist of it from ireland i don't think we had a lot of a lot of good information growing up about how to do it whereas you know maybe the french and the spanish and the germans and that they've had such a such a history of producing players the paths can be followed and i had guys like owen casey and scott Barron who were uh really good players top 250 um and learned a lot from them um but uh, it would have been again. I, I just feel like I would have, I could have done with um, with knowing a bit more about about sort of scheduling and where to go and where to train and things like that. You know. And okay, this gets us on to I think the meat of this episode is what do you know now that you didn't know as a fourteen, fifteen year old? Yeah, I think I didn't play enough junior international events. Like you talk about Federer, my um, Federer match, and you know I'd love you know I think if if, if we looked at his and I'm not obviously not comparing myself to Federer. And if I did what Federer did, I'm not saying I would have <laughs> had anything close to what he did. But if if you look at maybe what he was doing between the ages of 12 and 17, 18, in terms of maybe the international tournaments he was playing in, uh, I, I was sort of still focusing kind of on the domestic circuit a little bit in Ireland and, and playing a lot of tournaments in the summer, but then not playing a huge amount in the winter um, and then not playing on clay against the best kids in Europe. Um, between the ages of sort of 12, 13 and 18. Um, and I think that's such a key time. So, you know, at 16, I probably would have really tried to focus more on playing, um, you know, a mix of ITFs and futures and that. Because I, I only if I look back at my, my, my tournament schedule when I was sort of 16, 17, 18, I only played like two or three ITFs, maybe one futures, and the rest were just the domestic tournaments in Ireland. I was at boarding school in England. I was playing sort of the school's circuit in England but it wasn't really the top, top level internationally, which is what, so I kind of felt like I had a lot of catching up to do and obviously helped 
going to college in the States helped out a little bit. But again, I wasn't I wasn't sort of doing the same the same work and getting the same uh, matches under my belt at that young age um, that I think you need. So that would have been something I would have done a bit differently. And you went pro right after school. Was that a decision? Did you make a decision saying, I'm going to go pro for a year, see how it goes? and then go to college? Or had you always planned to go to college the year after? I pretty much planned to go to college. Um, so I played Davis Cup. My Davis Cup debut was summer of 2000 with Peter Wright, who was my Berkeley coach uh, and the Davis Cup coach. Um, and he essentially offered me a scholarship that summer for the following year. And I'd already committed to doing a year off on the tour. So I went down and did a, did a tour in South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, played a few in England, I got up to about 800 ATP. And actually, at the end of my year, I did three weeks in South Africa with a guy called David Nankin, a South African coach um, and a former player. I think he made third round of Wimbledon and US Open. He was, you know, around 100 in the world. And he's worked with Sam Querrey and Wayne Ferreira and a few of these guys. And he kind of at the end of the that trip sort of said, gee, I, you know, maybe you have a chance to play. Maybe you should, mm. uh, you know, think about keeping going. He wasn't trying to tell me to, but he was just sort of saying, you know, remember, you know, maybe keep your options open. Yeah. And certainly at the end of your career, I think you've got a chance to do something. Whereas I hadn't had a lot of that. Okay. My, my junior career. So like, I can't, I can't remember once being told by somebody in Ireland that I was going to be a top 150, top 200 player. And uh, now I don't blame them for that. <laughs> maybe it didn't look like I was. Right. But I think that there's not, uh, there's no, there's very few coaches in Ireland and certainly weren't back then who kind of were saying, oh, well, look at this guy yeah. is pretty good. We could probably do something with him. Let's take him on a bit of a, on a bit of a journey. So it was all up to you and up to your family and doing it yourself and learning as you go and, and making mistakes. And then you're losing, you're losing a year or two doing the wrong thing. And you're kind of two steps forward, one step back a bit. And that's kind of been the problem with Irish tennis a bit. It's, uh, you know, there's not kind of a, a kind of a set routine for players and they kind of know what to do each year. Do you think it's important for uh, parents to build like a committee team of ex-players, ex-coaches who've been there and done that, do you think that can add a lot of value or does it complicate things? I mean, I think um, I think the, the, the more good people you can surround yourself with who know what they're talking about will help. So, yeah, I mean, I think that would 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 be, would be helpful. But I think you've got to you've got to show results domestically, obviously, first before you start. Like I wouldn't, you know, if somebody's losing second, first, second round of Fitzwilliam, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be suggesting that they go and play 10 tennis Europe's every year. But if you're making semis or final or winning it, then you know maybe it's time for you to start to to look to do that. So um, I think it's just about about progressing in stages and uh, and that. But as I say, I'd like it to be I'd like it to be a bit more kind of organised and people knowing what they're doing because it's not that complicated. You need to get out there and play 10, 15, 20 tournaments a year in Europe from the ages of 12 or 13. But we've so few players doing that in Ireland. Whereas if you look at the French or the Spanish or the Germans or you know whoever, they're all doing that. Not all of them make it, but that's what they're all trying to do. Yeah, I com- completely agree. We get a lot of questions from p- players, from parents outside of Europe that want to send their, their 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid over to an academy in Europe. Obviously, because they can, they think they've access to great coaches and tournaments, a lot of tournaments. What's your criteria for a parent to send their kids to Europe or even an Irish kid to an academy in Europe? Um, yeah, I suppose my, my rule of thumb would be unless, I, I, I would be saying 16 
you know, maybe maybe the tail end of, of being 15, going into the age of 16, I think then I'd be comfortable somebody going to an academy um, and they've shown results sending an 11 or a 12-year-old halfway across the world to be a tennis player is a big, uh, it's a big risk. I'm not saying it's, you know, it, it shouldn't be done, but I'm just, I just think it's tough on the kids. Um, I, I feel like if you've got a, a decent setup um, where, you, where you live, you can still get out and play tennis Europe's and, and that in the holidays. Um, you know, obviously people in the US can just play a schedule in, 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 yeah. in the US and do okay. But yeah, I mean, I think 12, 13, do you need to be training four hours a day? I don't think so. Uh, I, th- I think you probably do need to be doing that at 15, 16, uh, for sure. I think absolutely, by all means, somebody should be considering it at the ages of, of, of 15, 16. But I think the 12, 13, they're still very young and I'd be, I'd be thinking that's a little bit too a little bit too soon but look if you look at guys in the top top 100 in the world some of them have done that and that's worked out for them so uh who am i to say but i in my personal view i think that's a little bit early what criteria would you have for them picking academy so you're 16 year old kid you're winning fits you want to play with better people you want to play with europe's best what's what would you look for in academy and coaching Climate uh, that you can play pretty much all year round and get access to clay courts. Um, I think that's obviously the thing that you're going to be not getting in Ireland. Um, and then you've obviously got your your Maratoglu's and your Sanchez Casals and, and that who tick all those boxes. They're just very, very expensive. So unless yeah. you're good enough that the that the academy just really wants you there and wants to, you know wants to be associated with you, you're going to be forking out forty grand a year or whatever it is. Um, so it's a big, it's a big, uh, it's a big expense. So I'm not an expert on, on, on sort of junior, junior academies and that, but I know that those, those places have a, have a long history of producing good players. And I think uh, the more exposure you can get to, to clay, um, to good coaches and good tournaments internationally, the better for your tennis. So, um, you know, I'd be suggesting that people, people kind of, if they really want to, to make a leap in Ireland, um, you know, make that uh, make that move um, if they can to, to to somewhere in Europe and, and get to get exposure to all those things. Yeah, get get playing matches with the best in Europe. I think can only mm-hmm. help you. And okay, moving on to the decision to go to college. Uh, I know again, this is a big thing in Ireland with players who we don't honestly have the best players in the world, but they have opportunities to go to great colleges in in the States and the same with players from Eastern Europe, from all over the world. When should a player go to college or go pro? My thinking on that would be unless you're sort of winning winning grade one ITFs, um, you should be going to college. So if you're, um, you know, if, you, if you're not, you know, right there at the slams making sort of quarterfinals, semifinals of, of junior grand slams or orange bowl, um, kind of fairly consistently showing yourself to be a real top 10, top 15 in the world prospect. I think you should go to college at least for a year or two. Um, I don't think it's perfect um, from a um, creating a tennis player point of view, college in the States, but it, it ticks a lot of boxes um, in that it's it, obviously you're getting a lot of matches, you're getting free training, you're getting a great experience and you're keeping your options open. Like if you go to, if you're a hundred or 75 in the world ITF under 18, the chance of you turning around in four or five years time being a top 100 ATP player are probably pretty small if you're playing a full schedule on the junior circuit because it's not, doesn't come out of thin air between the ages of 17 and 22. Um, and then if you go to college in the States, at least for a couple of years, if you're playing three or four in your college team, again, the chances of you being a top 100 player are pretty small. So 
go to college, if you go and dominate college for a year or two and are top five in college in the States, then yes, you've got a, you've got a chance to be top, top 100, top 150. Um, so I think you've got you to gotta look at it that way. Obviously, we have a bit of a cultural connection with the US, with the language and everything. And we have, I suppose, academically in Ireland, we're all quite, quite we all take it very seriously. And um, with me, again, it was always important for, for my parents that, you know, I finished school and then went on, went, went on to college. And then I saw where I was after that. Um, and that probably didn't help my, my ranking at the end. But at the same time, you know, I think if I'd gone on the tour at 16 or 18, I think it would have been a tough couple of years um, trying to make that transition. And maybe at 23 or 24, I would have been a little bit burnt out. So there's a couple of, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Did college mentally help you on the pro tour doing those four years at Berkeley? It definitely toughened me up. Um, I got a lot of wins. Uh, and I took a little bit of pressure off too when I went out on the tour that I had a, you know, I had a degree and a college career and a great experience uh, behind me. And then I was lucky that Wayne Ferreira, uh, obviously he was top 10 in the world and uh, he coaches Francis TFO now, but he was uh, living close to Berkeley. And when he retired in my second year, he started to work with me a lot. Um, we used to train and he gave me a lot of belief and said, I think you can be top 100 um, or very close to it. So to hear that from a guy who had been top 10 was huge for me. And then the actual work we did was really good as well. So I was lucky that I got, got, got to get that kind of influence in my career that I mightn't have gotten if I'd played a certain state in Ireland um, and tried to make it on the tour. So, um, yeah, you need a little bit of luck as well, you know. I think you work for the luck. You put yourself into those positions and then that's how you get lucky, which you did because you definitely touched uh, a lot of good players between Sampras, Federer. You know, you came in contact with them. So obviously you were doing the right things and you were on, you were on the right trajectory. Yeah, it was. I, I, I got injured in, in, at the end of my career. I'd won three challengers. I won two challengers in 2010 and qualified for two slams in 2011 and, and had, had to get hip surgery and had to retire in 2012. So I, I was doing, I was doing well. And, and I look at a guy like a Paolo Lorenzi or somebody who was, you know, made his breakthrough in the top 100 late in his twenties and stayed there for, for six or seven years. So I feel like maybe I could have done something similar to that. But, uh, but unfortunately, yeah, I had hip problems similar to what Murray has now and, and had to get surgery and just couldn't get, uh, I couldn't couldn't continue, um, but uh, but yeah, as you say, I, I kind of I, I ticked, uh, I, I touched a lot of those top uh, top players in a couple of the big tournaments. So that was great. And how, how are the hips doing now? I know we played soccer. Was it last year? You seem to be doing well. <laughs> I think it was about five years ago. But as you said, no, you played soccer. <laughs> did we not? We definitely last year. Yeah, oh, we sorry, we did at Christmas. You're right. There yeah, you go. You're right. You have a better memory than me. Yes, um, it's okay. They're okay. Uh, I can do like little bits I can play a bit of football or I can play tennis um but I couldn't sort of maybe go into five six days in a row of two hours tennis a day you know it's I get a little bit of pain it's fine it's it's, it's uh, it doesn't bother me day to day I just couldn't uh, I couldn't play pro sports I guess but from a day to day thing it's it's fine thankfully and do you play any tennis at all I try and get out uh, I try and get out once a week um I've got two small two small kids and uh, it's tough uh, it's tough to do it and I like to play a little bit of golf as well um, but it, I, I say I try and get out once a week it's probably more like once a month in reality but hopefully when the kids get a little bit older I'm going to start you know playing a, a bit more and uh, have a bit more free time but uh, but yeah no it's uh, it's something that I, I still I still follow the tour and, and I love watching tennis and I love being involved I'm obviously Davis Cup captain 
Um, we've uh, haven't got uh, anything on 2020, obviously with this uh, pandemic. But uh, I love being involved with those guys for for the week of the of the Davis Cup, and obviously just checking in with them all through the year. Um, so it's uh, you know I'm still involved and always will be. Great. And let's end this on what we ended with all our guests, bits of advice for a 14 or 15 year old junior who are quite good in their country. They want to be pros. What's the first thing you'd say to them? Um, I'd be saying try and get get out there and play uh, and and try and get your sort of 60 matches uh, a year um, where possible on the on the sort of European circuit and see where you match up, keeping your options open with school and try and get a little bit better every day. Um, if you if you do those things, uh, you won't go far wrong. That's perfect, Connor. Thank you very much. Great having you on. Cheers, Fabio. And yeah, I hope to see you on the tennis court at some stage. We'll have soon. to have a hit on the game of football soon. It's overdue. Yeah, over a week <laughs> now. <laughs> what a great chat with Connor. Hope you enjoyed the stories and picked up some valuable advice. I'll be back next week with Jude O'Reilly, an ex-top international golf caddy who is now a personal performance advisor and he talks to us about the transition from the junior game to the pro game, improving decision-making, managing stress and more. It's definitely an episode that can help you gain an edge. Until then, get out there, play some tennis. Bye.